Hello and welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. With me today, I've got photographer, writer, event maker and creator, Luke Muddle. Luke, thank you so much for joining me for the, not one, but the second time, even though our listeners didn't get to hear the first one. Yes, I am, uh, I'm happy to be here. Two times is better than one, I feel like. And hopefully we can just mean that we go twice as long this time. Yeah, that'd be good. I have a lot to say too, and if it doesn't bore everybody... Well, uh, so with that being the case then, how did you start, Luke, in this wild and crazy world of automobiles? What was it that pushed you in this direction? That's the long story, I think. Um, and it's funny, I'm glad we get to do this twice because the first time I hadn't really thought about it in years and it all kind of slipped my mind. And then, um, you know, afterward, it kind of brought back the memories and I started thinking a little more about it. And uh, I think it all started for me when I was younger. I never was really into cars, but I was always into cameras. I thought they were cool. And sure. I thought photography was cool. Yep. And um, I think my first passion was skateboarding. And I really wanted to get into skateboarding photography just because I read all the magazines. And I, I loved the work. You want to get a fisheye lens? I had a fisheye lens. In fact, um, I ruined my credit with a fisheye lens. It was the first thing I ever bought when I got my first credit card. There you and go. I never paid it off because I was an idiot kid. But uh, but I had one. And the debt collector still coming around and chasing you to the day no, for that I, credit card? I, a few years ago, I finally went back and you know got all that uh, situated. Taken care of. Yeah, you know, when I decided that credit was important to have. Certainly. But um, Shout out to uh, Jamie Moore, who also found out that recently that credit is important to have, and you should definitely pay your credit card bills. You should. You should. You're not. You're not going to be, chances are, you're not going to be a millionaire early in life, so credit is important, but um, I figured that out late in life. Anyway. Yeah, we give lifestyle tips as well on the No Breaking Podcast. I think it's helpful. They don't teach you this stuff in school, so you got to listen to NBZ to get it. Yeah. But, um, so you've got your fisheye lens. So I got you my lens. Ruined your credit score. Ruined my credit. I had a lot of fun uh, shooting just amateur skateboarding around Pittsburgh where I grew up, and uh, the whole time I was reading these magazines that just got me super stoked on doing something positive you know the, the skateboarding magazines especially trans world had amazing photography great writing um it really inspired me not just to continue down that path but to start looking at um publishing as a career you know and uh, who were the some of the ones that you admired there like photography and, and video work than the skateboarding like early on i think um atiba jefferson number one mm -hmm. uh, he he and uh grant Bertain and um some of the other guys, I think, that were there. Some of them, I, I think, still do some work now. Uh, Atiba still does work. Yeah, he does a lot of work. Um, Blayback, he was another one that uh, does a lot of stuff. He actually did stuff with Hoonigans for Gymkhana. Everything he shoots is great. Could be cars, could be skateboarding. He just he has that eye. Mm -hmm. But Atiba was probably number one. He kind of changed the game. He started bringing lights and soft boxes out to spots, started shooting on medium format, you know. Which was kind of the reason I got out of skateboarding photography was because it just became a little prohibitively expensive for me as a, you know, starving college kid. Sure. But um, but I loved the work they were they were doing. I loved the writing. I think video wise, they were way ahead of the curve. I think Dan Wolf and the guys who did all the Trans World videos and, and a lot of the other team videos were, were just way ahead on the video curve, and uh, they I, produced some awesome content. Yeah, I still think they're producing awesome content to this day. The stuff they do. Or especially on the skateboard world with the mm -hmm. where they're going with it and how they're using cameras and oh, the, great. their ability yeah. to, to what they shoot and what they find. Yeah. Yeah, they've definitely progressed. The rest of the world has kind of progressed around them, so it doesn't stand out quite as much. But, you know, back in the 90s, they were doing stuff that would be groundbreaking uh, by 2005 or 2010 considerations, I think. But as, especially in the budgets they've worked with as well. Oh, yeah. It was nothing. You know, these guys were staff guys who would just buy cameras or the, the magazine would buy a camera and they would just go out and film 
you know, which, um, and you could argue that that's good or bad in the long run, but they did some amazing stuff. Any, anyway, I, um, I was into photography in the skateboarding point of view. It became too expensive for me to really pursue. Um, at the same time, coincidentally, I started getting into cars. After my first year in college, I had a friend with an Integra GSR who turbocharged it. And I had another friend who had a Civic with a GSR motor and it turbocharged. And the first car I learned how to drive was my mom's Civic. And it was automatic, one five liter. Probably would have done uh, 95. Okay. Probably would have done an 18 or 19 second quarter mile. It was really slow, you know. And then I met these guys who had these cars that nobody could beat on the street or the drag strip. These things were running 12 and I think high 11s for the Civic at the time in, in 1999 and 2000, which, which was kind of unheard of. Certainly very quick at, the, at that time. At that say. time. And, uh, and I was blown away by it. Once I learned more about how that happened and how the parts interchangeability and all the things you could do with tuning, I became obsessed with it, you know, kind of like skateboarding. And uh, I got into cars myself. I had a Civic with an LS swap and nitrous that got totaled. Somebody ran a stop sign and hit it just in the wrong spot and uh, caused like $3,000 worth of damage, which was enough to total a Honda Civic. So I got a 240. I did a SR20 swap in that. Learned a little bit of fabrication and, and mechanics with that car. And then um, I just decided after a while, you know, the, the skateboarding thing wasn't really working out. I don't think it was going to work out. But I had all these, these car people around me and all these awesome things that they were doing. I should just start documenting that, you know. So what was it with some of the first events that you were documenting then when you made that switch over from skateboarding to cars? Hmm. Well, I, I, was, I was in school and I uh, was pursuing uh, education and a degree in journalism. And uh, at the time, they were only teaching you how to shoot and write for like local newspapers. So I was getting a little jaded. So I, I took what was supposed to be a, a couple of years off in my third year of school to just start bartending and saving money and, and doing freelance journalism on my own. And then um, the first event that I did after I bought myself a digital camera and a laptop was Hot Import Nights Chicago. I didn't have a license at the time, long story short, I, you know, driving illegal cars and going too fast and being a, an idiot kid, um, lost that, my license that way. But anyway, I took a, a Greyhound bus out to Chicago from Pittsburgh. Which is an weekend. experience in itself, I would think. It is, yeah, if you've never done that, you're not missing anything. Well, you're missing the experience, but there's not a whole lot of glamour surrounding Greyhound bus trips. Yeah, I'd certainly one that you'd be like, oh, I think I can skip that part of my life yeah. going around Greyhound yeah. bus stations late at night. If I never ride another Greyhound bus, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay with that, okay. I think. But, uh, but it was fun. You know, when you're like 20, 21, it's, you know, why not? Sure. But, uh, but I did that. I went out to HIN. I shot a bunch of photos of a car show. I put them on my Flickr and my MySpace page at the time. And uh, they caught the eye of Jason Sue, who was an editor at Modified and had a, a web, like a magazine startup, tunerzine.com. And, uh, you know, he wanted some content for that, so I agreed. And for the next few years, I just started freelancing more and more shows, races, features to anybody I could. So Tunerzine at first, that gave way to Modified, then uh, Performance Auto and Sound Magazine, Honda Tuning, Import Tuner, some of those guys. And then um, I did that for about two, three years, all up and down the East Coast. I had a, an Acura Integra after I got my license back. Bone stock drove that thing from Pittsburgh to Boston, Miami, Chicago, everywhere. Yep. And then um, after a few years of that, my buddy Clint, who I'd met at Tunerzine, became the um, art director for Import Tuner. Okay. And mentioned at the time that they were looking for a tech editor, and you know I should probably apply. And 
So I did that. I flew out, met the team, made a good enough impression that they uh, decided to hire me full time. So I packed up that Integra, drove across the country, and that was 11 years ago. And you've been still here to this day. Yeah. So what was it like going from the switch of being just essentially writing, uh, photographing, being a photographer to moving on to the writing side? What was, how difficult was it to make that switch? Uh, it was easy. You know, I mean, I, I never did finish my, my college you know, education, but I got pretty far. The photography courses, I thought, were, were pretty poor at the time. I think looking at some of the art schools and some of the other schools, the photography curriculum was much better than what I got. But the journalism side of it was, was very good. Pittsburgh has great newspapers. It's not what I wanted to do, but we have great writers in those newspapers, and uh, I got to learn from a lot of those guys, so I really appreciated that. So it was easy. You know, it's, it's daunting getting into writing because it's just harder, I feel like. There's, it's more objective, you know. I think um, the lines for what constitutes good photography are, are very fluid, but good writing is, is very, I mean, there's defi definitely different styles, but, you know, you know good writing from bad writing very easily, you know. Sure. Would you offer that up as a tip to anyone that is doing the photography, uh, the being a trying to be a photographer, so to say? Whereas if they have another weapon in their bow, so to speak, it might be handy to use going forward. Yeah, it depends. I'm kind of conflicted on that. I mean, for me, working a lot in editorial, it's, it's great to be able to write and shoot. And I think if you can offer shooting and writing as a package deal to your clients, you know, you can save a little bit of money and you can save them a little bit of money. And that gives you an advantage in the market, I think. But if you just want to be a photographer, I think you should just be a photographer. I think billing yourself as anything more than just that makes you feel a little bit less specialized so i think there's there's advantages and disadvantages to to being uh, to wearing multiple hats sure um but then again when you're going freelance like yourself is it it's always handy to have that extra hat to wear i guess yeah well in a hook yeah. somewhere you can pull it off and be like i can do this i think so yeah i mean it's always been good for me i have no complaints about it i enjoy both of it now like when i started writing I, you know it took me a while like I said it was daunting and um and I used to psych myself out about it but now I feel pretty comfortable you know I like doing it and as we talked to you now the this past weekend you're actually at an event shooting mm -hmm. who were you shooting there for uh that was just two editorial clients actually I had uh, a couple of clients drop out that uh, will go unnamed because sure. they're good people and just just had to drop out for Some financial reasons yep. yeah yep, which course. is very common but I only had two editorial clients. I had uh, Driving Line and Front Street Media. And then I just did general event coverage for both. And, uh, and what was the event, shall we say? Oh, uh, Formula D Seattle. And so how was it? You, were you, since we talked a little bit off mic at the start, what mm -hmm. was your, how was your whole race weekend, so to speak? It was good. It, um, you know, because of the client dropout, I decided um, to just take a, to shave a little bit of time off the trip. So it was uh, quick for me. I flew in late Thursday out early Sunday. Um, went to the track both days and a couple of things happened one it was a good event uh, Seattle for those of you who've never been there or seen the coverage the Seattle round of Formula D is notoriously rowdy there's a lot of contact there's a lot of high-speed initiation it seems like it's mostly all in good fun I mean this time around there was no you know temper flaring or anything everything was great it was a really solid event really good driving uh, the second thing that I thought was interesting was I have a lot of friends in Canada who I hadn't seen in, in many years and a lot of them came down to the event since it's only from BC, a two hour drive and from Edmonton, like a 10 hour drive. But um, a lot of these guys came and they brought their R34s and their S15s and all these awesome cars that we can't get in the States just yet. 
And, uh, and it was fun. We got to catch up. I got to take rides and this guy's 700 horsepower RB30 swapped uh, R34. And mm -hmm. it was good. It felt uh, kind of like the old days again when you have, you know, friends more so than work. You know? Yeah, I like like, and more a meet of sorts as opposed to actually being work, I guess, at that point as well. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I'm still counting down the days so that I can get my hands on a uh, GTIR Pulsar. Well, it's funny. Um, I had this conversation with some of the guys up there and... Um, since you know, importation has become such a, a popular subject amongst guys here in the States who were just counting down the days like that, mm -hmm. all the prices for the cars up there have skyrocketed. Yeah. So you used to be able to find an S14 or an S15, we'll say, Sylvia, on the ground in Canada, totally legal for Canada, for like four to $6,000. You can't touch one for 15 now. Yeah. You know, R34s are just import being bought. Import tax. It used to be the drift tax. Now it's all about the import tax. The import tax. It's huge. It's going to be big. There's guys up there filling warehouses just waiting for the next few years to turn a profit. That's that's how soon in advance they're thinking. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you had the money, you'd do it. I think so. But then again, I, I always worry that all the good ones have been taken by those terrible people in the Antipodes where they had it much earlier, Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Especially so. New Zealand. That's the thing, too. I don't know if these guys are getting cars from Australia and New Zealand yet, if it's just Japan. I don't know how they do it. But I know they're actually all the good RB cars and the nissans and stuff are very popular in new zealand too but well they had the early import laws they were able to import them under the gray thing much earlier than canada oh, I didn't so know they that. could ship them to, uh, ship them down there much sooner oh okay i see so you always gotta think that the ones that are gonna go first are probably be the ones that are easy to go and then probably yeah so, i don't know but then again knowing the the u.s guys they'll they're looking for a lot of them are looking for rough ones anyway you know if you're gonna make a project and you know how to do it yeah find the roughest one you can just you know so you have the chassis and I guess you got the uh, on the flip side of that you got the guys that want to spend the big money and get the the dream one as well. Yeah. On the other side, it's all the work's already done. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely both of those. But yeah, it was a, it was a fun event. I liked um, I liked FD this time around. I, I do every round. You know, every round of FD is fun. They do a great event. But Seattle uh, was surprising. I'd never been there before. That was my first one, and I, I'm really excited to go back again next year. And then, so what are some of the other events that you're covering this year besides Formula D? Uh, I have uh, IMSA coming up next, not this weekend, the following weekend at Road America. And uh, after that, I have to look at my calendar again, but I, I have a few things. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Let me actually pull that up right now and, and take a look. The magic of technology where you can look at one's calendar on your phone. I know. And, and even, we can keep talking as you do it. Right. And even on my aging phone, I can get it uh, pretty quickly. See, which there is, you go. Which is good. But yeah, I have IMSA next. next uh, that's my next trip, which is fun. I like road racing. It's totally different than drifting. But I like, I like it for all those reasons. And I like drifting for all the reasons that it's different. And you like drag racing as well. Love drag for racing. For all reasons that it's different. Yeah. I mean, drag racing, all these forms of motorsports. See, here's the thing. Drifting, you don't have to know anything about cars and you can watch it and be entertained because it's just, it's amazing to watch, you know. And, and road racing is a little bit like that, but you really have to know the players and the rivalries and the point standings and, and the strategy to, to really get enthralled by it. And, uh, and even drag racing, you know, if you look at Top Fuel, you can be anybody and just love to watch Top Fuel. But if you look at Sport Compact drag racing, for example, it's every bit as exciting if you know the players, you know, if you know the records. Yeah. So the big wait, the big reveal now, Luke. So yeah. Go, what's on the calendar? I have, uh, I have IMSA. I have uh, Bonneville, Bonneville Speed Week, which I'm excited about. I've been to Bonneville. I've never been to Speed Week. So that's like a bucket list item for me. I'm really excited about that. I imagine it'll be rather good, especially with the salt. Finally, and after the three years. Yeah. yeah. 
since that that company across the way taking all that salt water out might help. Yeah. Who would have thought it, right? I know, crazy. But uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be there, and then I have Grid Life South at Road Atlanta, which, which is another fun. fun event. Yeah, I love that event. That's the best blend of of road racing and drifting debauchery I've ever seen. It's great, and it's not, they have the concerts as well that go along with it, right? Mm-hmm. They do, and they're fun too. I think that's that's good for pulling in the non endemics. I think. Yeah, I think it's more of like a big party weekend. Yeah, absolutely. To get away, camp go to a concert maybe have a few fizzy pops yeah watch some car racing yeah you can do all that at road atlanta which is a great it's a great venue as long as it doesn't storm you know the weather is going to be hot but it's summer it's hot everywhere yeah hot and muggy yeah um and so what is it then uh which of those ones that you discussed the imsa and the drag racing where where are the places that you've really liked doing the photography work for all those i mean which are the drag mm-hmm. racing tracks i mean people might think the drag racing it'd be pretty just, this similar doing it but i'm assuming it's very yeah. different from when you follow drag racing going around it is i think um you know drag racing is funny because you can go to a, a small track like atco which is unfortunately now like the only remaining drag strip in new jersey since english town is closed down and it doesn't look like much if there's nobody there but when when it's packed it's impressive you know and you can see it's fun to see really fast cars on a, on a track that's maybe not world-class, you know? Sure. There's just this element of uh, uncertainty to it, I think. And then I think it's also when you go to the other edges of Atlanta at Las Vegas, because Las mm. Vegas, didn't they just do the big where they can do four cars now? Yeah, and it, I mean, it's always been a very nice facility there. I haven't seen it with four lanes yet. They just did that. But just the idea. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, doing the top fuel with the four would be crackers it's cool it's cool for two reasons that and then the fact that you know if if somebody blows a motor in one of the lanes and there needs to be a cleanup you can just move right over to the other lane and then cut it back down yeah Yeah, which is great not a lot of people know that if they haven't been to a drag racing when you do spill something on the track it does take a little bit of time to clear it up and make it safe again that's the only real drawback to drag racing is is the that you know i don't know what you would call that i guess just the maintenance or the lane cleanups but yeah yeah but i mean if you put x amount of horsepower through something if you're oh, yeah. running everything on the finest thing if something mm-hmm. goes it's going to go boom it's probably going to be going to go boom when it's going to be running absolutely yeah i mean that's normal drag racing is one of those motorsports where if you're not pushing those boundaries then there's just room there's you're not going fast enough there's room to grow you know yeah so if you're right on that edge man if you're right where you need to be to win you're you're going to be breaking motors left and right yeah and then so if we go from drag racing then over to the road racing side, which are some of the road racing tracks that you enjoy uh, either watching or then attending to take photographs at? Yeah, I think my favorite, uh, my favorite in both those regards is uh, Laguna Seca. I love that track. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful area. The weather is usually very nice, even if it's sunny or foggy. It's a great place. Um, it's, it photographs really nicely too. There's not a bad turn anywhere on that course. Second to that, I think um, I think Coda. It, it's very wide open. You got the whole big sky thing because you're, you know, out right outside of Austin, sort of in the desert. So it's it's a lot of brown and blue in the photos, you know. But uh, but I like it. And then um, the third track I could add to that list would have to be Watkins Glen. <clears throat> it's it's just great there. You have the the track spans so much area that it could be you know semi-rainy or damp in one area and and bright and sunny in another you know and it's up in new york there so the weather is always a little bit tumultuous but i I love shooting that track too and so when you go on assignment to shoot a an event or a race one of the steps that you have to do beforehand before you get there to make Mm -hmm. it the make your weekend sort of go as you ideally as you'd like it 
I think the first one is uh, look at the weather because if you need to pack rain gear, you, you need to pack rain gear. I mean, racing in the rain is amazing, so it's a shame to have to sit that out if you don't have rain gear. Um, number two is to look at the, the position of the sun, and there are a bunch of apps you can get for your phone. Sunseeker is one. There's a desktop app. I don't know the name of it. But I think it's just a college project of some kind. But these apps interface with Google Maps, and they'll show you uh, where the sun is going to be based on different times of the year and times of the day. And, and you can use that to really pinpoint where you're going to get your best shots and, and when. And uh, that's something I really like to do. Some tracks you're familiar with, you don't really need to do that. you know. But anytime I go to a track for the first or second time, I make sure to do that. And then um, other than that, it's just learning the schedule of the event and knowing when things are going to happen and where you want to be. But my personal philosophy is the more you can handle in pre-production, the easier production will go and the less you'll have to do in post. I've never seen any variance from that. And then how, obviously, if you're shooting, let's take the, your next event, IMSA, for example. You're going there for a, a client of sorts. Um, what is it that a client, What ideally, what do you try and bring for a client afterwards the event? What are the images they generally are looking for? Uh, it depends on the client. If it's editorial, the workload is a lot bigger, but less intense. You know, so I'll, I'll find, um, I mean, let's say for, for three days I shoot 3,000 photos, which when you're bursting shooting motorsports, that's not that's uncommon. not a lot at all. Yeah, I'll get up to like 10 sometimes, I'm ashamed to admit. But from that, let's say I pull 10% that I really like. You know, I'll divide that up between my, my various clients, make sure everybody gets their own photos, maybe, um, maybe make sure everybody gets photos that are, that are uh, the same in different ways. And then I'll send those over. So sometimes I'll send um, Super Street, say, 100 photos. There'll be 35 for an article and the rest in a gallery. And that's not uncommon. Just find the best images all around that you can send them. And then if I'm shooting for a team, I'll just um, I'll let them see everything I shot, let them pick out their favorites, and we'll work out a rate. So X amount of dollars for, say, 25 photos or you know X amount for everything I shoot. And then those guys, uh, those photos I'll edit and I'll send those over. And then uh, the last thing is just sometimes you'll sell photos ad hoc. Sometimes you'll go, if you're going through like a stock agency or if somebody knows to look at your work, you know, that is a, an art buyer for an agency, they'll contact you and say, hey, you know, Nissan really likes this image. How much can we license it for, for, for this usage? And then you'll kind of work that stuff out later. And most of the times those images just go straight over raw. They have their own people to do the retouching and cropping and whatever they need. And then have you ever been in an event where you've kicked yourself because you've missed something? Absolutely. Every single time. Yeah. What are some of the ones that have been like more so like not rather say missing like a key mm -hmm. pass or a key accent say, but what yeah. are the ones where you're like, oh my word, I can't believe I just did that. Uh, not so Aside much. Aside from hopefully not formatting a memory card or am I instance, yeah. like destroying a, a memory card? I haven't, knock on wood, I haven't done that uh, at least for a long time. I'm sure I did it when I was starting, but I've yeah. knocked over cameras. I've, my camera straps have failed before. Uh, I've had a bunch of different gear issues. I had uh, two times at Formula D Irwindale, I've had shutters just break. Blow, blow up on you? Yeah, and that happens once every 300,000 exposures. So, I mean, who's going to be able to call it? The, the chances of that happening twice in the same location at the same event, different years is just... Would have been better if it was the same hour. What's that? It would have been better if it was the same hour if they both just went. I know. I would have just laughed at that point. But that's happened. that kind of stuff has happened a lot. I, there, every time you shoot a race or a drifting event, you're going to miss some of the great shots that somebody else has gotten. You know, a lot of times I'll go to a drift event, I'll see a photographer stand in the same spot for the entire event, and I'll think to myself, man, all his shots are going to look the same. But that's the guy who's going to get 
that one thing that happens right in front of him that nobody else will get, you yeah. know? And he'll put that on Instagram. Everybody will lose their mind. And it'll be great. You know, it'll be great. And rightfully so, because that's he one way his, to do yeah, it. Yeah, he spent his know? eight hours a day yeah. there at that one spot failing to move. Yeah, that happens all the time. If, if there's ever... Um, if there's ever a good now, not that this guy is living proof of that, because I think this guy has, uh, I think his techniques are, are much more advanced. But Mark Rebellis, he's a motorsports photographer I follow. He's amazing. Any any time there's a there's a crash in top fuel drag racing, he's got it. You know, because he's got cameras I think positioned all around the track. But he's very thoughtful and he knows where to where to look for these things to happen, and he gets them every time. I mean, if you look at his Instagram feed, Mark Rebellis, I forget what his feed is, but I mean, just search for him, you'll find him. But, uh, but he gets all that crazy stuff. And is there any other uh, motorsports photographers that you do admire and like their work? Oh, there's tons. Yeah. Hey, Larry definitely is one. Everybody knows Larry. His friend, work is Friend phenomenal. of the No Breaking podcast, Larry Chan. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw um, I was... drag racing coverage by him. He's so known for his drifting, which is great. But I saw top fuel drag racing, I think, in California somewhere. I think it might have been the uh, Nationals at Pomona one year, a couple yeah. years ago. Some of the best drag racing coverage I've ever seen. And a very... Uh hydrated assistant louis as well i'd say yeah always yeah. hydrated that man i've never seen him without three drinks in front of him <laughs> totally yeah louis is good louis is very good um those guys make a good team uh there's a lot of people who are, who are kind of unknown my buddy mike bolt this guy from uh edmonton well i think he might be from calgary but he went to school in edmonton i'm always confused about that but no, i just ran into they have him the bag milk there it's all strange yeah anywhere up north like that and you know i'm a typical american i don't know anything outside of america it's maple syrup right that's about it yeah it's somewhere up there right Vancouver, Toronto, same thing. Um, anyway, he drove down for FD Seattle, and we got to catch up. And uh, and I've always liked his work, but the photos that I've seen him post since then from FD have been great. You know, very very good. He's solid. Um, there's a lot of guys. I don't want to you know ruin my competitive edge too much, so I'll keep that to myself. But <laughs> but I love looking at other people's work. I think if you're not doing that, if you're not you know trying to find inspiration in other people's work, you're just going to get passed up. No, I, I certainly agree. I think that you need to have those things to understand how they got the shot and how you would have done because even if you stand like you say in that same spot mm -hmm. you're going to be the camera settings are going to be different your take and post-processing will be different as well oh absolutely one more person i should mention because he's a friend is david carey he's good so yeah. he was up at seattle too and i've seen some really great photos come from him from that event he's uh, he certainly a very hard-working man he is i see him at all these events i mean we both cover pro stuff and pro-am stuff and you know all the little rinky dink things that happen at willow springs i mean it's, it's fun i think if also if you're not doing that you're kind of losing touch with the future of of your particular brand of motorsports so you got to do the pro-am stuff but i think he's a he's a guy that would agree with that uh that thought too yeah i think it's the idea of being and to understand who you should be looking for when they make the big leap up is always the next big thing as well definitely and it always doesn't hurt to try and make a few more connections. You never know who's yeah, going to go where. It's good. Yeah, you never know. It's uh, It never hurts. Most people that do this for a living or even for fun are, are pretty cool people. You know, Otherwise, they'd be doing things that are lame. Yeah. So speaking of those those lame people that want to try and become those cool people like <laughs> photographers, how what are the tips that you'd give someone? Well, first of all, if you want to be a photographer because you want to be cool, that's never going to happen. Those no. two things very you're rarely intersect. You're always permanently hot at a racetrack. Yeah. Permanently hot and sweaty. You're dirty. You're dirty. rolling around in the oh, dirt. it's yeah. awful. Working awful. for peanuts. No. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely not something to do if you want to be cool. But if... Um, if you want to get into photography, I think the, the best place to start is just to start doing it. Just go on Craigslist or eBay, find some cheap used gear, and then just get out there and, and learn how to use it. I've seen some amazing photos come from people with, with uh, kit lenses and base model SLRs. 
you know, so if, if you know the camera well enough and you know photography well enough, you can put that stuff to good use. So don't sit around thinking you have to have the top-notch gear. I did that when I was younger with medium format and skateboarding, and it just held me back. I think you could do it really with anything. Yeah, I think it's certainly a question of... No, I mean, like you said, you can see people take amazing photographs with even even your iPhone or your normal regular Android phone it's can true. take a fantastic photo. Absolutely. But I think, um, yeah, just, just going out there and, and trying and failing is the best way. I mean... You, you learn by repetition. So you grab a camera, you think of a shot you want, you know, you, you size it up in your mind the best you can, you try it, and then you look back on it and ask yourself what you could improve, you know, what could be different. Maybe the light, you know, would be better this time of day, or maybe if, um, you know, you would have shot with this lens or at this aperture, it would have been different. It's always good. Everything that you do, I think it's good to, to question it in retrospect and just ask yourself, you know, even if it's your favorite shot, just ask yourself what makes it so good? Why do you like it? And what could be better? Because you could always do something better. And then, so what about if we take a step away out of your motorsports work? What is some of the commercial stuff that you do on the other side of that? It's all uh, somehow automotive related, you know. So um, it could be like feature style stuff for uh, branded advertorial content. Uh, I don't really do any like really intensive um, brochure shoots or, or anything like that. It's just not what I do yet. There are people that, that are well-established that have been doing that for years, I think. And but you'd be well open to it if there's someone was to open their checkbook is what you're saying. Absolutely, so, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Anything I can... to help clear that credit card debt up from like uh, when yeah. you were a teenager with totally. that fisheye lens. Anything that can help with that. Uh, I've been in and set up enough productions on my own for other clients that I, I'm sure I could uh, knock something like that out myself with the right team. That's another thing, too. You need to have that team. You have to have a good DIT. You have to have a good retoucher, good producers. But uh, that's just not what I do right now. I think, you know, my career might, might steer me in that direction at some point. But I think for right now, I, I like branded content. I think that that's a good blend of um, applying the editorial disciplines to commercial content. And I like, um, I like motorsports. I want to stick that out, I think, a little longer and just see where that goes. Sure. And speaking of motorsports, we touched at the start briefly about your third hat that you do wear which was preparing and creating events. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the event that you created back with your drifting? Yeah, you know, uh, that was Street Driven Tour. That was really more a product of, um, that was my, my buddy Joey Redmond's uh, baby, I think. Him and uh, Brian Eggert, who's an FD judge, and a few other guys got together. Uh, and these guys have all been involved in drifting somehow since the start. Joey did Wrecked Magazine, I think, which started back in 2005 or six when we were both freelancers. I, I met him way back then. Um, Brian had been running U.S. Drift, the Pro-Am series, um, for the Mid-Atlantic region. And all these guys got together and they decided they wanted to do a small four-event uh, series called um, Street Driven Tour, which would just go to different regions of the U.S. and just invite Pro-Ams and pros alike to just have a fun day of drift bashing. So we did that for the last four years. We went to uh, Road Atlanta, Gateway uh, Motorsports Park in St. Louis, Las Vegas Motor Speedway in Vegas, and VIR, but in a completely different order. And we did those four events every year, and it was great. We had a lot of fun. We met a lot of really talented pro-ams in each one of those areas, and we brought guys like JR, Chelsea, out, Matt Field, um, Forrest Wang. All your favorite drifters were there. Forrestburg was there for a lot of it. And these guys would drive either their FD cars if they could, or they would just drive their demo cars, which a lot of times are pretty cool because you have, uh, you know, Forsberg with his four-door, what is it, M45, I want to say? Yeah, his Infinity. Yeah, and you have Turk with his Ferrari-powered FRS and, you know, all these crazy things. But uh, it was fun. It was nice. I like those drift events, those bash-style events, because the, the pressure of competition is off, and these guys can just cut loose and have fun. And it's the only time you'll see 
a pro-am from, you know, St. Louis get to go up against Forrest Wang from, from uh, Vegas. And it's always good to see that. It's very surprising, too, because some of these guys are way better than you would think. Yeah. And so, but what is the, did you find the challenges of putting or hosting an event? Was that you? Was that you at all, or was that more Joey and so forth? The rest of the team. Those guys handled all the logistics. All I did okay. was shoot it and do like the, the PR media. side of it. Sure. Yeah. So I would um, I would write the event recaps and send out the PR blasts with uh, like twenty five or thirty of my best images, and then um, it was fun. I got to work with a lot of guys in media, uh, like pro am side of drifting media. So a lot of blogs and 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 sites that uh, I you know I'd heard about, but I'd never really met the faces behind the sites. So it was really kind of good to meet those guys on a personal level and, and get to know them, you know, and realize that there's a lot more that those guys do than is apparent at first glance. Sure. And then we'll also sort of jump back as well as the tips uh, for doing the photography. When we talked last time that no one heard, obviously, because it's the un-listened-to uh, episode, you talked about how you prepared in particular in regards to your attire yeah, for yeah. photography. So what is it that's, that you need, that the listeners need to hear that's, that they probably don't realize is a very key and important factor about photography attire? Yeah, that's a good one. So um, that's something else you learn when you, when you go to events and you cover events regularly is that you, you need to keep the sun off because you don't want to get skin cancer. Farmer's tans are not sexy and you just don't want to be carrying around a ton of water with you you know and when you're when you're super hot and flustered you can't concentrate on getting the shot so for all those reasons you have to avoid the sun as much as you can and there's all different ways of doing that i don't like sunblock i think it just washes off and it's not comfortable so i wear a, a long sleeve white button-up shirt and i wear light gray cargo pants and cargo pants are also not sexy, but when you're a photographer and you got to carry batteries and filters and memory cards, pockets are very handy. You need those pockets, man. You need them. And then the the white button-up shirt. I've been told by a few it looks um, professional, and a few others it looks a little douchey. But uh, regardless, the reason I wear it is because it just keeps the sun off. I can roll the sleeves down, pop the collar, put my sun hat on, and I've got no exposure to the sun. It's keeping all that heat away. It's letting the air flow through. It's very comfortable, you know. And now the big question, did you come up with your the sun hat before or after Larry? Uh, it was probably around, around the same eh, time. You know, I definitely saw Larry wearing it, and I thought it was silly. Uh, mine's a little different. I can't steal his complete style. Like the flap is probably the best way to do it, we'll be perfectly honest. Mine is just like a, you know, a, brim. a full brim sun hat, you know, which is a little less I than know, perfect. I know. I think Larry's got that trademarked on the flap. That's what I feel like. Anybody who wears that flappy hat is just going to be Larry number two. So you he don't want to do that. He can't be number two. No, you can't. So I have just the sun hat, but I mean, if you look at what he wears with the sleeves and, and the flappy hat, I mean, that's all for the same reason, you know. It's all about that, that, that protection from the sun upstairs. Yeah, definitely. And it's never going to catch on in the mainstream. I don't think any of us uh, expect that to happen, but it always looks a little weird. But I think what I wear is more likened to what you would see people wear on a safari, which is silly, but effective. Well, you'd still take photographs on a safari, though, Oh, right? absolutely. Those still... guys have more money than I do, too, so. I've got animals <laughs> instead of cars, I guess, is the big difference between the two. Right. And I guess if you're shooting horses, I mean, they're both got horsepower then at that point. That is true. Zebras. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some pretty cool cars on safaris too. All the H1s and, you know, what was it? Um, the G-Wagon was like a kind of a safari vehicle, huh? Yeah. For, uh, for the very good, on the good safaris at least. Well, yeah, the expensive ones. Right. <laughs> um, so speaking of that, what are some of the, if you look forward, like in the automotive world now, um, what are some of the cars and things that you are really catching your eye, so to speak? Um, I'm really interested to see what happens with electric cars. I think that they are, in some capacity, the way of the future. And even the, the way of motorsports, I think, 
I mean, if you look at what these cars are capable of, they kind of best um, the traditional uh, combustion engine cars in, in every regard. You know, I think once battery technology catches up to, to the motor technology, they're going to be basically unstoppable. Yeah, I think that we, I mean, we saw that already with the Pax Bay Kill Climb this year. Yeah, I think that, you know, and it's kind of a shame because there's a lot, it's, I don't want to say easier to tune because I don't know anything about tuning electric cars, but I would assume that it's easier. And I think that, you know, your tuning latitude and the abilities you have in tuning the car are, are just much more precise. You know, as far as thinking about traction control and, and application of torque, I think it's just limitless. You can tune that to the millisecond and you'll, I mean, the days of traction control are going to be a thing in the past because we'll just have cars with perfect traction all the time in every situation. Yeah, that's what happens when you have less gears. Yeah, very true. Science. So it's interesting. It's going to be maybe boring once it comes to fruition because all these cars are going to be perfectly fast. But, you know, watching the scale up, I think, is going to be interesting. But then how do you think that's going to compete with such things like Robo Race and so forth when that comes starts moving forwards? You know, it's interesting. I look at the, the RC car world and I, th I think that, you know, if you really look at it, if you go, it's funny, if you go to Fontana, um, Cal Speedway, like on any random weekend, you'll see these guys that do like semi-pro or very advanced. I don't know what they would consider themselves, but very advanced RC racing. And it's interesting to watch. These cars are fast. These guys so are fast. good. They're like wedges. Yeah. Just wedges. It's like going, you can't even see them most of the time. They're no, so you fast. can't. They, they move so fast. They corner so fast. It's impressive to think of the operator having to control these things, you know. But um, but it's its own thing, you know, and it's interesting. But it doesn't threaten racing. So I look at robo racing, and I think that's going to definitely take off and be its own thing. But it's not going to threaten, you know, real motorsports. I don't want to say real motorsports. It's not going to threaten conventional motorsports with a driver behind the wheel because there's that whole human element that's probably most of racing when you get down to it. Yeah, I think that this, I think it's going to be like a different way to look at it, so to speak. I think so. I mean, yeah. obviously, we've got the drone racing now, which is the new yeah. one, which, I mean, it's not maybe it's the greatest thing ever. I haven't watched too much drone <laughs> racing. But, I mean, you've still got, that's, I mean, drone racing is essentially just RC cars in the sky, right? It is, basically. yeah. And you still have Red Bull Air Racing, which is amazing to watch, you know. And, and when you have that human element, so much more can happen, you know. It's like that little bit of imperfection, I think, is really what makes things interesting, you know. Yeah, but we'll see. Yeah, well, we'll see. But I, I'm looking forward to that. I want to see what happens with electric cars. And I also want to see if hydrogen cars ever pop up off of uh, from the margins. Because right now, the, the battery technology behind electric cars is less than ideal. You know, batteries have a lifespan. And, you know, they contain a lot of elements that are getting harder and more expensive to mine and produce. But, um, but hydrogen doesn't quite have those things. So I, I feel like maybe the hydrogen infrastructure will become a little bit more prominent I haven't seen anybody, you know, do anything performance-wise with a hydrogen car. So, you know, maybe something like that will happen. Well, it's still time, I guess. Yeah. So, Luke, if someone was wanting to find you online, where is the best place to track you down? I think my website is probably the best. I update it uh, squarely once a year. Yeah, perfect then. <laughs> but I'm starting to, I'm going to launch a blog on there pretty soon with all my ridiculous things I do in the spare time, like my film photography and, and whatnot. So that's just lukemonel.com. And then all my social sites are just at Luke Munnell all the way around the web. Two N's, two L's. Pretty easy to remember. That's perfect. Well, Luke, we really, really appreciate the time. Me too. Out, especially for coming out for a second time. Sure, no problem. It's my pleasure. I like doing this kind of stuff. And, and Kiwi also liked it because you got to get some more treats from me. I have more for her over here too. Well, maybe afterwards. Yeah. After we finish up, she can have some more. But guys, thank you so much as always for listening. And remember, we always like to get a very positive review from you guys. At least six, seven, eight stars, even though you can get us five. 
and always you can say some very nice things about myself. We'd like to hear that. And you can track us down on the social media at NoBreaking or find us at NoBreaking.com. And until then, thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.